Good evening and welcome to Talk Gnosis After Dark. We are con- uh, continuing our conversation with Dr. Dylan Burns. Dr. Burns is a Gnostic scholar and the author of The Apocalypse of the Alien God, Platonism and the Exile of Sethian Gnosticism. It's a great book that you can get through Amazon and I recommend that you do so. Welcome, Dr. Burns. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm joined this evening by our dear friend, Brother Jonathan Stewart, who is also the producer of Talknosis. Bishop Canterbury could not be with us. Welcome, Brother Jonathan. It's great to be here. And of course, Father Tony, our director and, and savior of us all, is uh, joining us for... You can't get rid of me. <laughs> no, he's, he's just too awesome. He's just too awesome. So welcome. So, uh, Dr. Burns, we had a great conversation earlier, and... Um, we want to get, get back into it. Father Tony, you're always taking notes during these shows. So do you want to uh, have any questions to give Dr. Burns? Yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um, I was fascinated that, you know, and I've never really thought about the the term Sethians as problematic. And, and you mentioned that during the video show that, you know, there, was, there were no groups that called themselves Sethians as far as we are aware. Um, so... I mean, what what do you think they called themselves? Well, I'm I I have to qualify that the the question for a sec. We do know that two church fathers say they know groups that call themselves Sethians. Mm. Hippolytus and Epiphanius mm-hmm. both referred to Sethians. The problem is we don't know anything else about these groups except for the theology they ascribe to them, which has nothing to do with the groups with that must be behind the text that scholars today call Sethian literature. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's actually a problem in, in, this, in the scholarly terminology that hasn't been resolved. Um, by electing to call this literature Sethian literature, uh, it implies a connection with the Sethians of Hippolytus and Epiphanius, which is tenuous at best. I see. Uh, although we, we can't disprove it either. Uh, what we do know is that everybody's interested in Seth. And there are, there are, of course, other traditions that are not Gnostic uh, in late ancient Christianity that are also interested in Seth. So this is, this is something to be, that we can expect from the period. One, um, one of my favorite yeah. terms uh, that gets thrown around, or used to get thrown around, I don't, I don't see it much anymore, the, the Barbello Gnostics. I always, ah, that's, yes. that's, that ah. was a very, a very nice term for it because, you know, Seth is certainly an important figure, but everybody talks about Barbello as, you know, kind of that. That uh, that God just underneath the the actual God, you know. Absolutely. Uh, although within the the Sethian group of literature, there's uh, a sub. When when we could actually say that there's a subset of uh, Barbaloite Gnostic literature. More of the texts talk about Seth than Barbalo. I'll put it like mm-hmm. that. All right. It's true. Um, what scholars hypothesize is that. The Barloit liter traditions came up first because Irenaeus, writing around 180 in Lyon, um, knows of them. And he doesn't say anything about Seth when he describes a particular cosmology in which the Barbalo is the chief player, um, arguably the, the classic account of Gnostic mythology, which is uh, also preserved in some form in the Apocryphon of John, discovered at Nakamadi. But Seth isn't described, isn't, isn't a figure, isn't a player in the Barbaloite cosmogony that uh, Irenaeus knows. And so scholars hypothesize that the Barbaloite stuff, you know, came first, must be, 
must have existed in the second century. And then in the third century, interest in Seth starts to spike amongst early Christians and the Sethian material sort of swallows the Barbaloite myth mythology and the figures uh, around Barbela, like the four luminaries, for example, mm -hmm. or the Tagenes Aeon. Mm -hmm. um, and and assimilates that to a new strain of mythology, which in which Seth is also uh, a big player and uh, a kind of descending revealer with various avatars throughout history. Some and, and in some of the texts, one of these avatars is Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. That leads me to an, another question. Actually, the the way that this particular group. Um, the way that they incorporated all of the traditions around them at the time has always been fascinating to me. Can, can you talk a little bit about how the um, the Judaism, the Christianity, the Platonism all kind of mingled together to form these texts? Yeah, one, one of the fascinating things about the, the Sethian literature, and especially the, the Platonizing text that's uh, circulated in Plotinus's group, is that it seems to incorporate elements of Judaism, Christianity, and Platonism, but doesn't really belong to any of these traditions exactly. You know, the, the Platonizing texts, uh, uh, Zostrianos, Arogenes, uh, Marsanes, and the Three Stelios of Seth, all extant at Nankamadi, um, use remarkable technical Platonic language that uh, is really only associated with the, the, the highest level of philosophical and mystical speculation of the third century. And yet they're apocalypses. You know, they, they use a literary form to assert revelatory authority in a way that no Greek philosopher would do at the time. So it's platonic, but not really platonic. Then on, on the other hand, you have all this language in this text about being a foreigner and a stranger on earth, uh, uh, about alienation being a good thing, right? Alogenes, it, it's a Greek word for other born. It means foreigner. Okay, mm -hmm. this is a very Christian idiom in the in the third century. Uh, pagans and Jews did not talk about exile and foreignness and alienation as a positive thing. It was it was a, it was a, a bad thing, and you didn't identify with it or make something out of that. But early Christian literature talks a lot about being an exile on earth and Christians as an alien race, a foreign race. You even have this in the New Testament, in First Peter. So. Huh. This, there's, there's a Christian element to this literature, and yet there's no invocation of the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, well, let's, how about Judaism? You have all this apocalyptic stuff and Judeo-Christian material, but then there's nothing about the law or Torah. So you, the, the, the Sethian literature is sort of in between Judaism and Platonism and Christianity, but draws strongly from, from all of these traditions. And part of what makes the material so striking for us to read today is that there's, it's, it's, it's uncanny, um, uh, this, uh, this, this, this sense that there's a lot that's familiar, but then it's not quite right. It's, it's, it's a little bit different. It, it sticks out. Um, scholars you know, sometimes like to talk about religious practitioners as uh, uh, bricoleurs, yeah? Uh, people who assemble aspects of different traditions and throw them together in their own way. You have a lot of this in Sethian Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking before we started recording uh, about the kind of emerging scholarly interest in the modern Gnostic traditions. Um, and, and you mentioned that you were interested in that and that there were other scholars starting to become interested in that. Mm -hmm. is, can you tell us is, you know, what's happening kind of in that space? Uh, absolutely. Um, there's uh, 
to the best of my knowledge, the first PhD dissertation, academic dissertation, being written on neo-Nazism right now by a, a young man named Matthew Dillon at Rice University um, under the supervision of Jeffrey Kripal, who's a scholar of Western esotericism and history of religions and much else. Um, he wrote a great book on comic books and esotericism, which I think would be interest, oh, yeah. interesting to you guys, Mutants Absolutely. and Mystics. Um, and there, there's, a, there's a, a lot of research into Gnosticism and mysticism going on at Rice, and, and Matthew comes out of that program. So I'm looking forward very much to reading his dissertation and whatever research comes out of it, because he's, he's looking at modern Gnostic groups in uh, North America, I think primarily in the United States, but uh, uh, Stephen Holder's group in Los Angeles, for example, um, as, as well as uh, the groups that uh, you affiliate yourselves with. So that scholarly attention is, is coming. Um, and, I, and that's a good thing, actually, uh, because um, scholarship on Gnostic literature in the, in the academy largely takes place in, in, in a vacuum that uh, sort of sort of pretends that nobody who's buying books about this stuff actually is interested in, in practicing it. Right. Right. It's just right. a politely pretending that there's only that there's only historical interest, and uh, the the vicissitudes of scholarship, of course, uh, uh, force us to only deal with the historical questions. Um, and this also means that the books don't get to talk about aesthetic or philosophical or theological questions that that. Uh, Gnosticism might raise for us today, um, but there's no reason that scholarship can't look at what people are doing. The, I think the reason that there's so little work on neo-Gnosticism thus far is that it requires a different set of uh, methodological tools for analysis. Yeah. You know, a good scholar of neo-Gnosticism will have to do some sociology and anthropology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He knows a lot about new religious movements and esotericism, yeah. uh, the, the Western mystery tradition. Um, uh, these are all tools that you don't get in becoming a, a scholar of ancient Gnostic literature, where right. it's all about languages and the manuscripts, and and so to to bring those those skills to the table and get them in conversation with one another is is a new thing. Right. Um, you have to have somebody I'm who's really interested in unpacking Internet flame wars as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, there was a I, I co-organized a conference a workshop last summer in Berlin, where he brought together people working on neo-Gnosticism and neo-paganism, uh, revivals of ancient Mediterranean religion, especially paganism and Gnosticism. And uh, one of the, 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 the papers dealing with uh, neo-Gnosticism uh, largely described a, a flame war about interpretation of the Apocryphon of John from Nag Hammadi. You know, with, <laughs> if we take this to be authoritative text, what is going on on page 20? You know, and, and they were going at it. That was it. That was fascinating. You know, um, yeah. so but but you you have to have somebody who can who can who can handle that media and, and knows how to treat this this evidence and read it correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned uh, Matthew Dillon. Is that the name? Uh, that, yeah, uh, Jonathan actually just sent me a link the other day to his uh, academia.edu profile. And this, what, what did you say? You wanted to read everything that was on there? Oh yeah, he just has his abstracts up, and I was just salivating. And of course, he has the abstract for his upcoming dissertation, and I just, you know, I, I really, really want to read that. I, I really hope that he he gets it up or publishes it or it circulates. So, uh, but uh, yeah, his his work looks fascinating. Um, uh, oh, 
I'll I'll go ahead. I'm actually going to ask a question that Father Tony uh, put in. I'm going to ask a, a question for Father Tony because uh, it's uh, it's one that I'm really interested in and kind of talking about stuff that scholars love to debate about in these texts. Uh, Doctor Burns, what do you think the five seals were? Oh boy, <laughs> this this is a favorite topic I know of, uh, of people to debate about. What do I think the five? The, the short answer would be, uh, I think. The, the five seals, what probably was a real liturgical practice um, performed by the individuals who were transmitting and copying and reading uh, some, the, the Nag Hammadi text that we would now describe as Sethian. Uh, it only appears in the text of the Sethian group uh, associated with particular mythologumina like Barbelo and the four luminaries, and especially Seth himself. Um, the question is whether uh, it's a baptism or an anointment. Um, a five-fold anointment has some precedent uh, in, in, in the period. A five-fold baptism is less of a clear thing, um, so I incline towards anointment uh, because uh, we know that other people were doing these sorts of anointments around that time, especially in Syria. Um, we the, then the question is: to what extent uh, was 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 water or real oil involved at all? Um, and this, this can't be said because these texts are interested uh, in, in water of light, baptism of light, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in the anointments of the, the Christ aeon, I mean, the Christ is the anointed one, literally, right? Mm -hmm. As anointed through light, through the emission of light and through, through thought. Um, so to what, to what extent actual water or oil was used, we can't say. But we can say that at the very, very least, it served as a strong symbol for the transmission of, of thoughts and for the transmission of some kind of divine light. My guess is that the five seals must have involved uh, more than one person at a time. Um, so some kind of group environment like that we see in the three scales of Seth, where people are chanting together, we bless you, we praise you. And because there's so much in this literature dealing with uh, glorification, uh, doxologies, prayers, praising the various aeons as they are ascended, and then the, the great invisible spirit, the first principle itself, uh, of course, is unpraisable because of his transcendence. Um, the great emphasis on, on glorification and then increased divinization through the practice of glorification, a kind of auto-glorification through glorifying, as it were, just, just as the angels do, so there's a resemblance to angels here, the five seals must have looked something like that, in my mind. But it's all hypothetical. All we really have are mention of five seals at the end of several of the Sethian texts without any explanation of what they are. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating little mystery. <laughs> <laughs> do you, uh, uh, Dr. Burns, what do you see as the Sethian's legacy and impact? Um, I, I know that, that there's theories that, uh, that perhaps the Manichaeans did uh, have access to their texts and use them. Uh, I don't have the reference in front of me, but, uh, but one person, uh, one scholar, has, has, has detected hints of, of Cephian use of texts as late as the 8th century. Uh, did, you, did, they, did they have an impact on the religious world uh, that, uh, that resonated, you know, past through the third and fourth century, or did it? Uh, did they have their time in the sun and kind of kind of disappear? Well, some of the, I think you're thinking of Puish, um, 
uh, a French scholar from the mid-20th century who, who also worked on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He was actually one of the few people who did both Nag Hammadi and Qumran. Usually people go one way or the other, which is a pity because the, the, the corpora illuminate one another. Um, but uh, uh, Puish famously showed that some medieval Syriac sources, um, Sy Syrian Christian sources, know of uh, classic Gnostic traditions, uh, including some associated with the Setian literature. Um, so we know that at least some of the stuff is bouncing around until the, at least uh, the, the ninth century or so. Um, there clearly is some influence on Manichaeism. Some figures in Sethian myth uh, show up in Manichaean thoughts, uh, Manichaean cosmogony. Um, in Mani, he was somebody who really synthesized stuff from all over the place. He took, he took all kinds of things. So this is no surprise. Um, and this leads me to think that the Sethian literature has, a, has an origin in, in Syria, Mesopotamia, the same sorts of places that uh, Mani grew up in, or at least was running around in. Uh, because there's there's much else in Sethian literature that superficially reminds us of a little elements of Mani's thought, and it's a, it's a, enough of these little things that there there must be some genealogical connection going on there. Um, as far as the impact of Sethianism, I think the, the the big impact is is in the realm of Greek philosophy. Actually, it's in the realm of intellectual history. In the second century, a famous Platonic philosopher named Numenius could say, what else is Plato but Moses speaking Greek? Mm. <laughs> right? People were, were, were really into, at, at that time, this is, very, this is a big thing, they were, they were really into uh, uh, assimilating uh, what, they can, what they imagined to be the wisdom of the East, of Persia, of India, of Egypt, to Greek and Roman uh, models of, of authority and and of thought, and saying, well, you know, you, you have the same sorts of traditions passing around the same sorts of truths, and if you just compare them all and you put them together, sort of like you get in in, uh, in Jung or, or other twentieth century comparativists, right? That you could find some sort of real hidden tradition that's going on there. Um, you have this in the second century. This was going on, and. Platonists would engaging in this enterprise would say, well, you have it in the Bible too. That's one of the traditions you got to look at. After Plotinus had a fight with the Gnostics, the Christian Gnostics in his circle, this stopped happening. Platonists who were interested in uh, Hermes Trismegistus, for example, the wisdom of Egypt, or in the Chaldean oracles, a, a text uh, which at least purports to, to be from Persia, did not cite the Bible or Christian authorities anymore. So you have a real shift in the third to fourth century or so, where Jewish and Christian sources get shut out of the Greek philosophical canon. That's an interesting thing. And I think the, the Sethian literature played a big role in that because it's full of this Jewish apocalyptic stuff, um, things not just, uh, not simply the invocation of uh, authorities purportedly older than Plato, the figures of Zostrianos and Allogenius and so forth, but the, the tone and, and color of these revelations, the descriptions of seers becoming afraid, uh, fantastic descriptions of writing on clouds, um, the, the, the interactions with angels involved, um, the description of becoming an angelic being, that, uh, that human beings can be divinized as opposed to simply have uh, uh, divine essence trickle down to them. There's a sort of, in Platonic philosophy at the time, 
human beings don't actually become divine. There's a there's trickle down soteriology, so to speak. <laughs> it comes down through filtered through a, a, a bunch of divine beings, but divinity never belongs to you. This is not so in the Gnostic text. You you can be divine yourself if you have the sort of experience. So. Uh, and especially, and this was a, a big thing for philosophers, affirmation of the end of the world. That the end of the world is coming, the end is nigh, it's, it's, it's going to be near, and then it's all going to be over. Uh, Greek philosophers believe, believed that the world was eternal. And they, this, was a, this was actually a dearly held belief for them. So a, a lot of aspects of what seemed to us to be familiar uh, from a Judeo-Christian perspective, uh, the idea that the gods want to communicate through us through revelation, um, as opposed to myths that we decode using philosophical uh, uh, eyeglasses, as it were, uh, allegory, or the idea that uh, uh, we could become divine ourselves, as opposed to simply have a periodic influxes of divinity that uh, pass through us and then, then come away. And especially the idea that the world was going to end. All of this came together in these texts in a very strong and potent way that I think was scary for Plotinus and his student Porphyry, they pushed back against this material, and after that, Platonists didn't want to have commerce with Christians anymore. You do have in, uh, cases of philosophical reading groups in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries where we know Christians and, and pagans uh, commingled, cohabitated, but they didn't last very long. And our, our testimonies about them are always that they, they ended uh, uh, poorly, in some cases violently. If. Nobody else, uh, in other words, after the 3rd century, nobody said... What is Plato but Moses speaking Greek? People didn't even like to quote it. The people who did were Christians, not Platonists. Yeah, the Gnostics have been ruining everything for everybody since, you know, 268. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to take a, a little detour here. Uh, there's been a lot of scholarly debate in the last 15, 20 years or so over the label Gnostic itself, yeah. the word Gnostic. Uh, where do you come down on that issue? Is it is it useful as a term, or should it be abandoned? And should we talk about all these groups on their own terms? Uh, I do think it's useful. The the however the exile of Gnosticism, uh, temporary as it, as it was, I think was also a useful thing. Um, the, the the debate comes from a, a booklet in the written in the late nineties by a scholar in Seattle named Michael Allen Williams, who argued that there are a lot of uh, misleading cliches associated with Gnosticism, like mind-hating, like a mind-body dualism, a hatred of the body, uh, libertarianism, sexual libertinism, um, a parasitism, religious parasitism, and so forth. And he wanted to set out and explode these cliches, which he did very successfully in his book, I think, and then say, you know, if we we, we, we got to talk about all this stuff somehow, but let's just retire the term Gnosticism. The cliches are too glued to it. It's all about the demiurge, really, the idea that the world is created by somebody other than God and somebody who is worse than us. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's why the world is a, such a screwy place. Um, so let's talk about biblical demiurgicalism. But as you can imagine, that term did not catch on. <laughs> it is not catchy. <laughs> However, he's right that it is all about the Debiers, actually. Um, I think that the, the term Gnosticism is useful because we know that uh, two ancient individuals, Irenaeus, who I mentioned earlier, a second century church father, and Porphyry, a third century philosopher, associated a particular body of myths and mythological characteristics with individuals 
who they called Gnostics. Mm -hmm. um, and this leads us to think that these individuals called themselves Gnostics. Uh, Greek term Gnostikos is a technical term. It means somebody who knows a knower. And these people must have wanted to call themselves knowers, knowledgeable people, because they had real knowledge of our origins, the divine world, not the present world in which we live today, which was created by somebody very unpleasant, as yeah. is evident. All you have to do is look around you, so they would tell you. Um, so the fact that uh, such thought was associated with people called knowers, Gnosticoi, in the ancient world, I think gives us warrant to make up the term Gnosticism to describe the sorts of thoughts that these people had. And uh, this is uh, a perspective that uh, is more or less related in a book from 2010 written by David Brackey, a um, uh, scholar now in Ohio, um, but uh, originally formulated in the 90s by a scholar named Bentley Layton, who I also studied with. Mm -hmm. um, I think what you find, uh, if, you, if you go to the conferences and you talk about these things over a beer, what you find is that more and more people uh, working in the field are interested in using the term Gnosticism uh, than were uh, especially 10 or 15 years ago. Gnosticism is making a comeback. But we're more circumspect about it than we used to be. We no longer say Gnosticism, dualism, Gnosticism, elitism, and so forth. Um, these, these cliches have mainly been abandoned. I'll add one small thing to that which is that now I work in Europe, and uh, I, I've, I've worked in, in Denmark and, and now employed in Germany. And on the continent, it's, it's, a, it's a little more conservative. Not only did Gnosticism never stop being used in the first place, but uh, the critiques of Gnosticism as a category haven't really set in. So uh, here in Germany, when scholars talk about Gnosticism, they do mean dualism and elitism and hatred of the body. Uh, that still is actually still going here. So once, once you leave the English-speaking world, uh, the scholarship is uh, remain more traditional, I think. Hmm. That's a kind of a diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> um, uh, the... I'm I'm a fan of April Deconic, uh, as anybody uh, who's listened to this show more than twice would tell you. Really? Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she has a, an interesting uh, theory that the the Gnostics, particularly those we call Sethians, met in kind of a lodge structure. Do you have any mm -hmm. thoughts on that uh, that kind of aesthetic style? Well, what, what exactly do you mean by a lodge structure? Well, that they were... Lodge structure, help me. Yeah, so uh, something akin to uh, a Freemasonic kind of initiatory structure uh, where um, there was kind of an element of secrecy to it and, and people were either in or out. There's, there, there must be some truth to this with respect to at least some groups because some of the ancient church fathers complain that the not that the Gnostics in their congregations meet secretly apart from the others, and otherwise they are completely indistinguishable from the other Christians. <laughs> Which is why I would say, uh, when, when when I was asked earlier, I think in the, the the video interview, you know, what did these people call themselves? Well, actually, they, they must have called themselves Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, that that that's the the the, the clearest answer, uh, uh, and certainly the most truthful one. Um, whether a, a lodge structure accompanied that, uh, I, I can't say. But uh, scholars generally agree that uh, some look at secret societies and also secret fraternities of uh, a secular kind, of which there are plenty in, in the ancient world, um, 
would be a very good model to look at in trying to assess what uh, uh, Gnostic groups must have must have looked like. I would say for the at least the the more technical Gnostic literature, the stuff that where I have a lot of influence from Greek philosophy, like the Platonizing Sethian texts, there, there must have been something like uh, a philosophical reading groups. Um, and we know that philosophers would get together and they'd pick a particular text and then they'd discuss it and they'd argue about it. And I, I think Gnostics probably did the same thing. Mm. And where would they have met? Well, probably at somebody's home. And this isn't so unusual. That's how the first churches were, as a matter of yeah. fact. Look at the Book of Acts. So uh, Gnostics probably had house churches meeting in people's homes, discussing particular texts that they found authoritative, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Apocryphon of John. And, mm -hmm. and all of this is very much in keeping uh, with what uh, early Christians and pagans were doing in a variety of contexts. Probably looks like that. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not there was an element of transgression to these meetings. And this, this is something I know April is very interested in, and maybe part of what she's going for with the Masonic thing. Uh, that, that's, that's a bit tougher to, to, to assess because we, just, we know so little about what these uh, meetings looked like. But we can say that some of the ideas that we find in the, in the Gnostic literature that's preserved for us today would have certainly seemed out of turn for Christians at the time, and so transgressive in some way. Hmm. Very interesting. I, I know we have a deadline here, so I wanted to, um, you mentioned before we started recording that uh, the work that you're doing uh, there in Germany with the, the um, loan words from the Greek loan words in, in Coptic documents. Could you just really quickly give us a brief overview of that work that you're doing? Absolutely. Uh, I'm working at the University of Leipzig uh, on a project called the Database and Dictionary of Greek Loan Words in Coptic. And what we're doing is uh, putting together a database and dictionary of uh, Greek words used in Coptic literature, all of Coptic literature, documentary text, okay. literary text, Gnostic text, magical text, you name it, everything. And uh, this is a, actually a very big thing because Coptic is a Creole. Uh, there are loads of Greek words in it. And when you're reading Coptic and you get to a Greek word, you have to go look it up in a classical Greek dictionary, which will often mislead you. Uh, in okay. the context of reading Coptic. And so we're putting together an apparatus that scholars will be able to use to get around that and uh, be able to deal with uh, the, the Greek vocabulary in the Coptic language, as well as uh, uh, grammatical terms, uh, function, functional language and so forth, in a much more responsible way. Um, it's, a, it's a blast, it's wonderful technical work, and the project moves uh, later this year to Free University of Berlin. The whole thing relocates. And so I'll be uh, located in Berlin along with the other readers of Greek loanwords in Coptic uh, from October on. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating project because I don't think people people hear the word Coptic and they think, well, it's just a language, right? But it's, it's really kind of not. It's, it's an amalgam of Egyptian and Greek. And well, well, it is a language, but some there, there, but it's a, but it's a language that uh, is, came about in, in a bilingual environment. Um, mm -hmm. Hellenistic, Hellenistic Egypt uh, was was a place where you had a, a vernacular, and you also had a, a what's called what linguists call a prestige language, uh, a language that you use when uh, dealing with the government, with dealing with law, um, when dealing with commerce, and, and that language was Greek. Uh, this was also the case in, in Palestine, you know, uh, Jesus, we all hear the anecdote that Jesus probably spoke some Greek, right? 
Uh, that's because Greek was a prestige language there, even though his native language must have been Aramaic. And Coptic uh, 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 came about from an environment where there was a lot of Greek because Egypt was very Hellenized. And so uh, you, you have a, a, a tremendous amount of Greek vocabulary in Coptic. Uh, yet the, the overall structure of uh, the language is still Egyptian. And uh, uh, a classicist, you know, would, would get lost immediately uh, reading Coptic. Hmm. All right. Well, I think we're about out of time. Uh, I wanted to thank you once again for joining us on the show. It's uh, it's always nice to have somebody who knows what they're talking about come and join us. <laughs> I don't know about that. It was wonderful to be here. I want to, to thank you for having me. All right. Thank and you, do you so wanna, much. Do you want to really quickly tell people where they can find you on the Internet? Absolutely. Uh, they can, of course, look me up at the University of Leipzig webpage, but that'll move. You can find me uh, on academia.edu, where I have a website uh, that talks about me and my work, and where readers can also download many of my articles. All right. Very good. So Thank thanks once again. And for those of you listening along at home, we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License, and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.